I'm very happy to be introducing tonight's guest, Dr. Richard N. Haas. Dr. Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Until June 2003, Dr. Haas was director of policy planning for the State Department, a U.S. coordinator for policy on the future of Afghanistan, and U.S. envoy to the Northern Ireland peace process. Dr. Haas was also a vice president and director of foreign policy studies at the Brookings Institution and special assistant to President George H.W. Bush. Dr. Haas is the author or editor of 11 books on American foreign policy, including the recently published War of Necessity, War of Choice, a memoir of two Iraq wars. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Richard Haas. Thank you and good evening. It's good to be back around. And it's my first time doing something with Zocalo. So this is a great treat for those of us from New York. Uh, I'm gonna talk for, I was asked to talk for about 25, 30 minutes. Uh, uncharacteristically, I will try to do what I was told. <laughs> and that should leave us at least 50% of our time for comments and questions and criticism. Although, as I often tell my wife, this, uh, this entire idea of constructive criticism can go too far. So I uh, <laughs> hope you will take it easy on me. Uh, I am going to talk mainly about my new book, War of Necessity, War of Choice. Though, as you will see, it, it lends itself to many of the foreign policy challenges that the United States is facing today or could well be facing, be it in Afghanistan or Pakistan or still yet in Iraq or Iran, or Darfur, or what have you. So I'm totally comfortable with you asking about these other subjects, but I will mainly talk about the, the two Iraq wars. Let me, though, make a more general point, and it's, and it's this, that if you only take away one thing from tonight, and I don't know about you, but often my capacity to take things away from talks like this is finite. Uh, so if you're anything like me, uh, yours may be too. So if there's only one thing you're gonna take away, it's this which is that there's very little about history that is inevitable. There, uh, I would expect if we had had this meeting 20 years ago, and 20 years ago happens to be the year the Berlin Wall came down. This is actually this year, the 20th anniversary of that event, 11-9 of all days. I would, I would bet that not one of us would have predicted that two Iraq wars fought between two Presidents Bush and Saddam Hussein would have been the defining events or two of the defining events of this era of history. And the reason I believe that very few of us, if any of us, and I, I know I certainly wouldn't have predicted it, would have foreseen those events is because they were not inevitable. But rather they were shaped by individuals, by Saddam Hussein, by both Presidents Bush, and also by ideas about what it is the United States should be doing in the world. And my only point is that had different people been in power, and I'll speak from the perspective of Washington, I believe history would have turned out very, very differently. And I say that because it's just something to keep in mind uh, when one looks at the past and one looks at the, at the future. Uh, I'm fortunate because I was a participant in both. For the first President Bush, for 41, George, George Herbert Walker Bush, I was the senior person involved in this part of the world, the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, South Asia, and so forth, on the staff of the National Security Council. So day in, day out, I worked with him and Brent Scowcroft and others on the evolution of, of U.S. policy. And in the second Iraq War, the more recent one, I was at the State Department as the head of the policy planning staff under, under Colin Powell. And it turns out there are only a few of us who are involved in a senior level in both. There was uh, Colin Powell, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs in the first war and Secretary of State in the second. There was Dick Cheney, who was Secretary of Defense in the first war. If you recall, he was President Bush the first, second choice to be Secretary of Defense. John Tower was the first, but he became Secretary of Defense for 41, and then he obviously was Vice President for 43, Paul Wolfowitz, 
who was the number three person at the Pentagon in the first war and the number two person in the uh, second, Bob Gates, who was the deputy national security advisor under Brent Scowcroft in the first war and more recently has come into the Pentagon in the second, and uh, myself at a slightly more, to say the least, modest level, but it's still, I believe, close enough to get a pretty good sense of what happened and, and why. And I'll come back to this theme at the end. What's so interesting to me is whereas on the surface there's some similarities. Again, Bush, Saddam Hussein, Iraq, war. That's about where the resemblance ends. And the more you drill down, the more I find it impossible not to be struck by the dissimilarities about what distinguishes these two conflicts. And I believe in seeing the differences, there's some learning to be had. I learned a lot in going through it, and I learned even more in writing it. Indeed, uh, for those of you who plan to write books, the, the one thing I have is uh, to say is to be careful in claiming originality. I was feeling really pleased with myself about the title, about coming up with this idea of war of necessity, war of choice, and I literally had finished the galley of the book, and it was about to go into final printing when I got an email from a friend saying, somewhere that I've heard something like this before. You better go on, do some checking around, and I think there's some religious literature that mentions it. So I, like all of you, I did what everybody now does. I went, I Googled, and I played around with it for a few minutes, and lo and behold, somebody beat me to it by 800 years. <laughs> it wasn't exactly recent. Uh, a guy named Maimonides. <laughs> Uh, who wrote about wars of necessity and wars of choice. And so, you know, just before you go out there in print and claiming great originality, uh, check Google and perhaps uh, your rabbi. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, let me start with the first war. Uh, I call the first war a war of necessity. And what I mean by a war of necessity is, is really two things. One is the, the presence of what I would call vital national interests, uh, things that really matter, truly matter to the fate of the country. And secondly, the absence of, of alternative policies to protect them. I hear someone's cell phone uh, on vibrate. But the, um, the, in the case of the first war, if you recall, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, in early August 1990, uh, to get slightly ahead of myself, the United States tried other policies. We tried diplomacy, uh, we tried sanctions, and then ultimately we, we gave up. And the feeling was that if we don't act soon, there's not going to be any Kuwait left to save, and there's not going to be any Kuwaitis left to save. And ultimately we turned to, to military force. And again, that's why we thought it was a necessity, vital national interests, and, and the, the fact that there weren't other available policies. The reason I thought the interests were vital, and more important so did President Bush 41, is, is twofold. One is, again, remember when this happened. This is 1990. This is less than a year after the war came down. And we were struck by the sense that whatever we did or didn't do, however we did it, we were going to be setting precedents. It was early on in this new era of history. We simply didn't know what the new era was going to be like. We didn't know what its character was going to be like. We didn't know what its personality was going to be like. And we were very conscious of whether we acted unilaterally or multilaterally through the UN or not, if we were seen as trigger happy or not, that this would be setting precedence. If we let Saddam Hussein get away with it, our thinking was, what lessons would tyrants around the world take if they saw that this was the sort of thing that people could do and get away with? And we were just worried that rather than this being a one-off, this would simply be the first of many. So we were very conscious of precedent. And secondly, there were the immediate interests, which is that uh, you're talking about the Middle East, and in particular, you're talking about oil, not in the sense, let me just make it clear, not in the sense that we were after it to enrich ourselves. This was not a war for, for uh, American investors. But Iraq controls 10% of the world's oil. Kuwait's another 10%. So if Saddam Hussein had been allowed to keep Kuwait, that would have given him one-fifth of the world's known oil. But then we also figured if he had been able to get away with that, Saudi Arabia by that point would have been independent only in name because the Saudis would have essentially taken the lesson. 
that the world would not stand up to Saddam Hussein, and it was our concern then that he would really be in control of a majority of the world's oil, regardless, or as I like to say in Washington, irregardless of whether he actually had <laughs> physical control of the, uh, of the resource. Now, this all uh, was not obvious. I remember the first National Security Council meeting of the crisis. And as you might expect, uh, people were all over the place. This was, this was not something we expected. This crisis did come out of the blue to some extent. Indeed, until the last day, I was one of those who didn't think it would happen. I thought this was a lot of theater. I thought Saddam Hussein was doing some late 20th century version of gunboat diplomacy, essentially pressuring the Kuwaitis to drop their output of oil, because at, at that point, the price of oil was quite low, in part because the Kuwaitis were producing more than their, their quota under the OPEC uh, agreement uh, told, them, told them to do. And again, it was one of the cases where I was wrong and most others were wrong. Indeed, it's what you would call in the uh, business uh, a false negative. We saw all these signs of Iraq gathering forces by the border, and we dismissed it. And I pointed out only because the second war was in part premised on a false positive where people thought that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And what you had in each war were, were completely missed intelligence uh, signals and, and analysis. And one of the conclusions I will end up with, uh, again, at the risk of getting completely out of order here, is that assumptions can be dangerous things. Because assumptions can block your ability to perceive things for what they are, but rather you tend to fit them in panel, in channels, in the way that any, do any doctor doing diagnosis tends to, because he has in the back of his head certain diseases, and when he sees certain symptoms, he immediately says, oh, that must mean this because of the following pattern, because 99% of the time, these symptoms occur together and mean a certain disease. And 99% of the time, you may be right, but 1% of the time, you may lose your patient. And it's, it's that kind of bias uh, that can undermine the quality of diagnosis, and in this case, undermine the quality of intelligence. Uh, but anyhow, obviously, uh, towards the end, the last few hours, we thought that it looked real. And indeed, uh, I was deputized by the rest of the government to go speak to the president to persuade him to try to head this off. So I went over to see Brent Scowcroft. This is now late in the afternoon, early in the evening. I think it's August 1st. And uh, the president was in a somewhat inconvenient position because we didn't think this was going to be a crisis because he had just been hitting some golf balls. So he was basically in the sick bay of the White House, the east wing of the White House, getting a massage and getting heat applied uh, to a, a very sore shoulder. And I was trying to brief him on the, uh, situa the unfolding situation in southern Iraq and northern Kuwait, which is it's difficult under the best of circumstances. But anyhow, you can't always choose your settings. And we were trying, to, we were having the conversation, okay, it's six or seven o'clock Washington time, which meant it was two or three in the morning, give or take Baghdad time. And the issue was, could we get to Saddam Hussein and try to persuade him that this would really be a bad idea and that he would not be allowed to get away with it? And this was a challenge that was more difficult than you think. Uh, this was before the age of cell phones, essentially. And in any case, I, I didn't have Saddam's number. And we didn't think it was the sort of thing. This was not a country. Going to Iraq and picking up the phone and calling someone at that time, this is not a country, shall I say, where individual initiative was applauded or rewarded. So the idea that someone would take it on himself to necessarily wake up or find the leader was, I thought, a long shot. But all the same, we thought we should try it. So we were literally debating whether to go through the Iraqi embassy in Washington or more likely just through the the American embassy in, in Baghdad when the phone rang and it was the acting secretary of state on the line saying he had just gotten a call from our ambassador in Kuwait and the shots, had, had shots were being fired, Iraqi troops were coming in. So obviously this question of whether we could persuade Saddam to invade had been somewhat overtaken by events. And we went into a, a National Security Council meeting not much later and people were all over the place as you might expect. In my experience, again, it takes individuals a few hours or days to get their sea legs uh, in a crisis. And when the meeting ended, uh, I spoke to the president and Brent, and none of us was terribly happy with the way the meeting went. The president was uh, felt very strongly from the get-go, not, by the way, as some of the myths would have you because of what Margaret Thatcher said, said later, 
but from the get-go that this, uh, the Saddam Hussein ought not to be allowed and could not be allowed to get away with this. And he and Brent said, why don't you put your thoughts together? So I did, and I wrote this memo. The president had to go out to Aspen, so I wrote a memo about what I thought the stakes were historically, resources, strategically, what have you. And then when uh, he came back, we, we huddled before the second NSC meeting, and the president was persuaded that he wanted to basically go down and lay down the law to everybody. And Brent said, Mr. President, if you do that, no one is going to challenge you. Uh, you know, despite what John Kennedy wrote in Profiles of Courage, it's very hard after the president gives an impassioned statement at a National Security Council meeting for someone to speak up and say, hey, boss, you're all wet. Uh, so the president said, fair enough, I'll hold back. And instead, Scowcroft and then Cheney and Larry Eagleburger, who was the deputy secretary and then the acting secretary, because Jim uh, Baker was traveling in the Soviet Union, and gave talks. And there was a consensus form that we, we ought to try to, um, one way or another, turn this around. We didn't have milita military options at this point. That would take some months to develop. But the feeling was the United States could not let this stand. And indeed, if you recall, when President Bush landed at the White House on Sunday, you may not recognize me because I had a lot of hair then, uh, but I was the guy who had to meet him at the, the helicopter. And he went out and said, this will not stand. And it was based upon his worldview that this was one of those, again, turning points in history where the United States had to, had to draw the line. And again, I, I come back to the idea that I don't think it was inevitable. If you think about it, what he then went on to do, ultimately, was send more than half a million American men and women halfway around the world. Uh, we got about a dozen UN resolutions passed. We got dozens of countries to join in one way or another, some with troops, some with dollars, some with diplomatic support. And ultimately, we went to war. And again, I just don't think it was axiomatic. I can imagine other presidents uh, having basically learned to live with this and said, well, we'll do this, we'll keep sanctions on, but we won't uh, use force to do this. We'll defend Saudi Arabia, but not liberate Kuwait. And to me, it was, it was, it was an interesting example where uh, an individual and his sense of principle, and Bush was of the old, old school, uh, mattered. He also made a big difference several months later. I mean, he made a difference all the time he was president, but he made a big difference in particular several months later. If you remember, the, Saddam invaded early August. He then had about six months of what was called Desert Shield, where the gradual buildup of forces, all the resolutions demanding the Iraqis get out fully and unconditionally. It didn't work. He had the last minute meetings between Jim Baker and Tariq Aziz uh, uh, on this. You had all the efforts to get Saddam out one way or the other and on work. We then, la we then launched the air phase of the war in mid-January, which became Desert Storm, six or seven weeks of air campaign, and then there were four days of ground campaign. And I was sitting in my office at the end of the four days beginning to work on the speech that I knew the president would have to give when he decided to end it. And then the phone rang, and it was Bob Gates, again, was Deputy National Security Advisor at the time on the phone saying, you ought to get down to the Oval Office. And I said, well, I need about a half hour more. I'm just finishing this speech. He said, no, God damn it. And he said a few other things, but <laughs> not exactly PG. And he said, uh, you better get down to the Oval Office as in now. So I said, got it, and went down. And there was um, the President and Scowcroft and Baker and, all, and Powell and so forth, Cheney there. And the decision was uh, whether to end the war then. And what was so interesting is the president wanted to do it. And he thought it was the right thing to do. That was the deal with Congress. That was the deal with the international community. That was the deal with the, with the Arab world. We also believed that we needed an Iraq to remain in place that would still be strong enough to offset Iran. Because before all this started, our biggest concern was revolutionary Iran, much more than, uh, than Saddam's uh, Iraq. And there was also... Uh, Though there were calls to, quote, unquote, go or march to Baghdad, there was not a lot of enthusiasm for it. Indeed, not one person in the room favored going to Baghdad. We talked about it, including, by the way, Dick Cheney. Uh, but the president said, before we decide, Colin Powell, he said to Colin, why don't you get on the phone, talk to Norm Schwarzkopf, and there's literally a phone in the drawer for some reason. It's almost like Maxwell Smart. There's a phone in the drawer of the desk in the Oval Office. 
picked up the phone, got Schwarzkopf on the phone, and basically Schwarzkopf said, "Give me, you know, let me check." But basically said, "I need a few more hours, but we're fine." Some of that turned out not to be exactly right in terms of what Iraqi troops were were trapped and, and so forth. But what was interesting, and the president and Scowcroft and I had talked about this a lot, the president had decided that what would be best for the United States was that we limit what it is we try to accomplish here. And very much in our minds, and it was something that I had talked a lot uh, about, was what had happened in 1950. And most of you are too young to remember it. I'm too young to remember it. I was born in 51. I read a little bit of history. And after the North Koreans came across the border in the Korean War, they nearly pushed the Americans and the South Koreans off the peninsula. Douglas MacArthur, the local commander, then had this very bold, militarily uh, brilliant landing at the port of Incheon, regained the tactical initiative, drove north, cleared the North Koreans from out of the south. But then, rather than stopping, he went north of the 38th parallel with the permission of Harry Truman, who, like MacArthur, somewhat got caught up, shall we say, in the flush of gains. They kept going, wanted to keep, kick the North Koreans, the communists, essentially out of the peninsula, went up towards the Chinese border, the Yalu River. The Chinese would not tolerate that. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops, known as volunteers, quote unquote, came across the border. And three years and 30,000 American lives later, we were back to the 38th parallel. And the argument that I used at the time was that we don't want to have our equivalent of going north of the 38th parallel, and in this case, going to Baghdad. Because the feeling was that it would be extraordinarily difficult to manage that type of a situation. And a similar argument was used a few weeks later when the twin rebellions grew up, the Intifadas, the Kurds and the Shia rebellions grew up. And it was very hard not to intervene, but our concern, as Colin Powell and, uh, and others explained, I remember the briefing with the easel in the, in the Oval Office, was that our troops had not prepared for that, they weren't equipped for that, we wouldn't be able to identify good guys from bad guys, we would lose more American soldiers getting involved in an Iraqi civil war than we had in liberating all of Kuwait. And, it was, and essentially, once we were in, we didn't know if we could get out. And what was so eerie about it was how the conversations in the spring of 1991 foreshadowed the conversations and the reality in 2003 and, and beyond. The second war of Iraq was a war of choice. And a war of choice, as opposed to a war of necessity, is when usually the interests are less than vital and there are other available options. In the case of Iraq in 2003, there were other options. The United States could have shored up the economic sanctions that were fraying, could have used diplomacy or a combination of the uh, two, could have continued to use small amounts of military force. We had no fly zones in place over most of the country. And there was nothing new that had happened. It wasn't as though we had received some great new intelligence that Saddam Hussein was about to break out or do something with weapons of mass destruction or about to invade Kuwait or anybody else again. There was nothing imminent or nothing that was particularly new. So I didn't see any uh, vital national interests that were uh, uh, there. But nevertheless, the administration uh, decided to go to war. I found this out in July of 2002, nine months before the war began. When people, at this point I was running policy planning estate, and guys on my staff, women on my staff are coming back saying, something's going on. I said, what do you mean? They said, all the people working for the vice president, for the national security advisor, and the secretary of defense are too happy. Something is going on. So about once a month, I would have a, a meeting, about an hour meeting with Condi Rice, who was then the National Security Advisor. And I showed up and I said, what's going on? And we're all getting the sense that you all are planning a war in Iraq. There had been some talk about it. And that's a really, are you sure you want to do this, Condi? I think it's a really questionable idea. And she said, Richard, save your breath. The president's already decided. This is July, early July 2002. So I go back to the State Department. Say, uh, call my boss. I said, Colin, guess what? He said, he said no way. Uh, can't be. As he called, he said, you misread your girlfriend. I said, no, 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 trust me, it's not. Uh, so the, about a week later, or less than a few days later, he said, you know what, you're right. And by the time he had dinner with the president and Condi Rice in early August at the residence, the debate on the table was not, whether to go to war, but how? Whether to use Congress, whether to uh, go to the UN. 
And what is extraordinary is that all of this happened without, a, without there ever being a formal meeting in the Bush administration about whether to go to war, which is quite stunning when you think that the, the, the most faithful, the defining decision of a presidency was made without a formal meeting to debate the, the pros and cons. I was quoted a few years ago in the New Yorker saying I would go to my grave not understanding why. Uh, I think now I have a pretty good idea understanding about why it happened. Uh, it was not about oil. Again, there was no, you know, the left-wing argument that American foreign policy is no, motivated by profit is just not true. Never once in all my years in government I've, have I ever heard anybody make that argument. I really don't believe it's very important. Uh, it wasn't motivated by Israel. Indeed, one of the leading people in the Israeli government tried to talk me out of the war, saying, you guys, you're fighting the wrong country. If you're going to go to war, go to war against Iran. For God's sakes, don't go to war against Iraq and get distracted. This is uh, back then. Uh, but I believe it was because after 9-11, the president and his senior leadership wanted to send a message to the world that the United States could shape history and not just be a victim of history. And that the, the liberation of Afghanistan and the ouster of the Taliban, uh, in a phrase I coined, didn't scratch the itch. It wasn't big enough. It wasn't significant enough. So people wanted to do something, and Iraq was the chosen vehicle to do something big and bold, to take one of the centers of the Arab world, oust the government, bring about regime change, turn it into a democracy, <laughs> and then based upon that, that would become a model for historic change throughout the part of the world, which is essentially has been the least successful part of the world. And Iraq was going to be the stepping stone uh, towards that. Uh, I doubted that, to say the least, uh, and argued that it was uh, wrong, but um, lost the argument, to the extent I even had the argument. And very much, uh, and also, you know, very much to also try to argue that, if, again, if you are going to do it, like Powell saying, uh, use the UN, use the, you know, get congressional uh, backing. but. In case anyone asked me, I didn't resign over it because my opposition to the war was muted. Uh, I used the phrase 60-40 largely because I thought that Saddam Hussein had chemical and biological weapons, and he clearly was not in full compliance with UN resolutions. Now, had I known then what I know now, which is that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, and what he was hiding was not chemical and biological weapons, but the fact that he didn't have chemical and biological <laughs> weapons, uh, I would have been completely opposed, and if I couldn't change the policy, I would have left. But I didn't know that at the time, and I don't believe you, you leave organizations when you lose 60, 40 uh, debates. Otherwise, places couldn't uh, function. So uh, I have spent most of my time arguing then how to do it right, and in particular, how to prepare for the aftermath. And in so doing, this was now the fall of 2002, I wrote the longest memo I ever wrote in government. I brought together the entire policy planning staff, and for several weeks we looked at, in detail, every single experience the United States has had in its history in occupying and basically doing nation building in other countries. And we came up with a 15-page single-space memo with all sorts of uh, appendices, which we sent to the secretary. And he then gave to the president, the vice president, the secretary of defense, national security advisor, and others. And all I can say is if you read the memo, it's actually in the book, uh, got declassified. Uh, everything we, uh, basically, what became the history was everything the opposite of what we said about how to go about it in terms of uh, what the sequence should be and what policies the United States should adopt, how you deal with the country's army, how you deal with... Uh, people who are members of the ruling party and so forth. Uh, and one of the reasons I think it was, which was one of the fateful decisions of the administration, was that the White House put the Pentagon in charge of planning for the aftermath. And for those of the analogy I always think of is tennis. It's a little bit like playing an intense game of tennis, but your opponent calls the lines on both sides of the court. So the Pentagon was not only on the ground with the most people overseeing the security side, but was put in on charge of all decision making about how the United States would go about the aftermath. And it seemed to me that was a recipe for failure. And again, I mentioned uh, assumptions before, the you know, wrong about whether Saddam would invade a decade before, wrong about weapons of destruction. 
This time, again, people, in this case, the intelligence analysis wasn't wrong, but the policymakers' take on it was. And by that I mean most of the intelligence being produced at this point was warning that Iraq would be very difficult. But the advocates of the war didn't want to believe that. So instead, they discounted intelligence that didn't support their preferences and instead listened to those few academics or others who were arguing that this would be easy, that the Iraqi people would greet us as liberators, uh, children would throw candy at us. They threw things that wasn't candy. Uh, that uh, in a matter of months, the United States would be able to leave and that Iraq would have a flourishing democratic capitalist society that, again, would prove a model for the region, would also prove a buffer against Iran, indeed, would challenge by its very example the ability of the Iranian government to survive. And this was, uh, needless to say, uh, alas, tragically, uh, all wrong. But again, it shows the power of assumptions to distort policy. Uh, where does this uh, leave us? Let me just make a few other points, and then I'll stop. Uh, one is the process matters. At uh, the Kennedy School, where I used to teach years and years ago, uh, we used to tell the students, you know, your biggest problem is you're smart, and you'll think that coming up with the right policy is a big part of things, but actually an even bigger part of life is coming up with the right implementation. And the question of whether to go to war, whatever you think about it, at least as important was the question of how to do it, to use enough troops to prepare for the aftermath and so forth. And it just, to me, it reinforces the lesson that you can never ignore questions of, of implementation and get hung up just on policy of, uh, on questions of design. So it's in true in terms of process, where you need to have a rigorous vetting of all the assumptions. And it's also true about questions of, uh, of implementation in terms of the assumptions, which I've talked about, obviously vetting there. Uh, intelligence, places, intelligence organizations need to have ways of challenging the conventional wisdom. And there's got to be uh, a policy process where people can bring uh, counter views to the table. I used to say that the purpose of the national security process and the national security advisor is not to make the president comfortable. It's to make him uncomfortable, to challenge the assumptions, challenge the preferences. I used to tell my staff, I never want to be surprised. Better you say it while we're, while we're talking about it than we, 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 we either recommend it or do it, and then we find out things that we should have considered uh, beforehand. One other thing, which is a lesson we should have learned in Vietnam, which is there's no substitute for local knowledge. Uh, a few of you may remember a book, Fire in the Lake, by Frankie Fitzgerald, written about Vietnam. And what it basically argues is one of the reasons the United States did so poorly in Vietnam is we didn't know enough about the society we were, we were going to war in. And I would say the same thing about Iraq. We simply didn't know enough about the splits within the Shia or relations between Shia and Sunni and what the political culture had, began, had, had become. And instead, we, we came at it, just like in the, the old days, we used to have anti-communism was often an intellectual rubric here. It was pro-democracy. But intellectual abstractions and constructs are no match for local realities. We learned it in Vietnam, and I'm afraid it took another you know, generation later. We learned it again in Iraq. Uh, let me just make two last points, and I'll stop. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against I don't want the lesson of this to be that wars of choice are per se bad. Uh, wars of choice are just that. They're wars of choice. Uh, Vietnam, I'd say, is a war of choice, which history is uh, understandably rough on. I believe the second Iraq war, history will be relatively rough on. But other wars of choice, say the Balkan wars, both Bosnia and Kosovo in the 90s, these are not wars the United States had to fight. But we chose to fight, and many people would think they were good choices. Or other people would criticize wars of choice we didn't fight. Rwanda, Darfur. Wars of choice, again, are, are places where you've simply got to ask yourself, if I use military force in significant amounts, will the like, if this two questions. First, will the likely benefits, will the likely results, the positive results, outweigh the costs? And second, when you look at the likely benefits versus costs of a military intervention, does that rack up better than all your other options, be it doing nothing or doing diplomacy or doing sanctions or what have you? And if you're persuaded, if you're confident that uh, a military intervention makes sense, both in the, in the narrow as well as compared to your alternatives, then a war of choice may well be the best policy decision you can make. 
but it does have to meet that standard of analysis. Otherwise, it seems to me, uh, you can't defend it to yourself, much, well, much less to your, your citizens. Let me say one other thing. What makes this so interesting, <clears throat> and the reason also uh, I'm not bored with this subject, even though I've written a book about it, is uh, what I think it's also about. Uh, yeah, on one level, it's about Bush and Iraq and Saddam Hussein and war and all that, and wars of necessity and wars of choice, but it's also about something else, even more fundamental. And it's about the purposes of the United States and the world. So take a step back. When you look at the first war, both what the United States and didn't do, uh, what this was was a war in which the United States sought to shape the external behavior of a country, in this case, Iraq. And it's consistent with the notion of American foreign policy that the purpose of American foreign policy, the business of American foreign policy, if you will, is to shape the foreign policies of others. It's essentially called the realist school. And this is very much the foreign policy of the 30, 41st president. The second war was not to change the foreign policy of Iraq, though that was a desire, but basically it was to change Iraq, to oust the government, transform the uh, society. Or to put it another way, it was part of a school of thought that says the purpose of business of American foreign policy is to change the internal nature of others, to change the internal nature for moral reasons, humanitarian reasons, and also for policy reasons, on the basis that democ mature democracies treat their own people better, obviously, but also treat their neighbors better. And this is the Wilsonian idealist school. And obviously, George W. Bush was uh, a major believer in that. I would simply say uh, I, I have a lot of doubts about the viability of the second school. Uh, in part, and mainly for two reasons. It's not just you know, it's not because I'm obviously against democracy. Uh, I'm not that cynical, but it's for two reasons. One is that I don't know of anything more difficult for the United States to think that it can somehow re-engineer other societies. Uh, very, it ought, ought to fill you with some pause and a little bit of humility. I mean, George Bush as a candidate, it's interesting, talked about how, carrying out a humble foreign policy. This was not a humble foreign policy. This was anything but humble. This was about as ambitious as you get. Secondly, I would ask whether we have the luxury. China is not a democracy, but it seems to me we've got to work with China about climate change or the situation in North Korea, or Russia's not a democracy, but we've got to get their cooperation if we're going to keep Iran from crossing some nuclear weapons. Uh, threshold, I wonder whether, it's not only whether the United States has the capacity to bring about democracies elsewhere, I wonder whether we often have the luxury. Because the process of democratization, I believe, is a generations, something of generations. And in the meantime, we've got to carry out foreign policy. And we've got to get these governments to work with us on pressing problems. Uh, and, and God knows there's enough pressing problems in our, in our inbox. So what I believe is instructive about these two Iraq wars is not simply the way you make policy, it's not simply the need to know the local situation. It's not simply the need to, to vet assumptions. It's not simply to think very carefully before you carry out a war choice, but it forces you to think very hard about what it is this country is trying to do in the world. And I would simply say that we have to ask ourselves, what is, the, what is a reasonable and sustainable scale of ambitions uh, and objectives? And I would simply say that uh, sometimes the best is the, is the enemy of the possible, or as I recently put it in a, in a shorter piece, we have to think about defining success down. And sometimes it's better to uh, accept partial or limited wins and successes than to run the risk of, uh, of expensive defeats. So with that sober message, let me stop and open it up to you all on whatever you'd like. Uh, hi, my name is Stuart Ham with a group called We Are Change LA. First, thank you for being here and talking so candidly, giving us some insight into Oval Office discussions. It's not something you get every day. But uh, you differentiate between wars of necessity, wars of choice. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Project for New American Century if you weren't involved personally. Isn't it true that fundamentally these were wars of agenda? And isn't there actually an agenda driving us under the guise of this or that for, for, for empire, for, uh, you know, you put it as 
spreading democracy when we're actually a constitutional republic and our constitution is being dismantled in this process. It's very alarming to a lot of us. I'm hoping you could speak to that. Thank you. Well, I find the wars, again, fundamentally different. The first war, in general, wars of necessity, as I said, are where you have vital interests and where you don't have alternatives. In this case, it was really fought for fundamental reasons of regional and global order. I'm comfortable with that as a foreign policy goal. I would not want to live in a world in which either a tyrant like Saddam Hussein controlled the majority of the world's oil, or where international relations was conducted, uh, how would I put it, absent the principle that states should not use force as a matter of course against other states. It's indeed the basic, the most fundamental concept of international relations of the last 350, 400 years is just that, that sovereignty ought to be respected for the most part, and that countries ought not to be using force wantonly against other countries. The, the second Iraq war, it seems to me, went way beyond that. It went way beyond that because, I mean, the, to get, uh, to drill down just a little bit, and I'll, um, I'll go on for a minute, I apologize. The phrase was used by the administration that this was a preventive war, but it wasn't. I mean, this is a preemptive war. I'm sorry, I don't mean to confuse you. This is a preemptive war. But a preemptive war means that there's imminent danger. There was no imminent threat. There was no warning received that Iraq was about to do something. This was simply a preventive war on our part. It was sent, it was to deal with a potential threat or a gathering threat rather than uh, an, an imminent one. And I think that is something that by and large uh, we'd want to think twice of. And more broadly, I don't believe the United States, as a matter of course, should be overthrowing governments simply because of our desire to see them be more free. Uh, it's interesting. The only other son of an American president to become president was John Quincy Adams. And his most famous quote, and I'm going to mangle it here, but his famous quote that the United States should not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And I think the lesson to take from that uh, is clear. Saddam Hussein was a monster. That's not the issue. But the real question is whether we should have gone abroad to destroy him. And all I'm saying is I think that's a bridge too far for American foreign policy because part of my concern is, and Iraq really makes it come home, is if we are not careful about wars of choice fought for less than vital interests, will we have the military and will we have the economy and will we have the public support we need to fight wars of necessity if and when they, they crop up? We have just got to be selective in what we do. Uh, Vincent Outero from Westwood. Uh, Dr. Haas, who would you say was the most influential advisor to President Bush 43? It's a great question. Uh, my cop-out answer is himself. And, but I think it's an important answer in the sense that you know, the prevailing wisdom a lot of places or consent is that you know, Dick Cheney, the vice president, had the most influence, or some would say Condoleezza Rice or even Don Rumsfeld. Very few people say my boss, Colin Powell. Uh, but I actually think it was the president that he chose these people. He allowed the national security process to unfold the way it did in its very informality. Uh, I wrote at one point that he got the process he wanted, but not necessarily the process he needed. It wasn't as rigorous and as disciplined as it ought to and could have uh, been. So, he, so the fact that he chose these people, stuck with them as long as he did, didn't bring in people to compete with them often, didn't have a formal vetting system, all of this suggests to me that he was by far the dominant person in his administration. I only say this because people underestimate him. And there's a, a lot of stuff out there, again, particularly about how the vice president was uh, disproportionately influential. And after Bush, yeah, I would say Dick Cheney was the most important person, but after him. Uh, I think, in a sense, he was his own most important counselor. Hi, my name is Ralph Strell. Uh, this goes to your early point about the personalities making the de decisions making a difference. In one of the Bush con one of the press conferences leading up to the war, when Bush was justifying uh, what a monster Saddam was, one of the statements he made, and I only heard him make it this once, and my sense is it slipped out, but he didn't 
got censored after that was, he tried to kill my father. My question is, to what extent do you think Bush family considerations played a role in driving him? Yeah, that's, that's the kind of question that we may not, you know, I, some people would say we won't know until the memoirs are written by the president and others, and even then I'm not sure we're going to know. I don't think that played a large role. Uh, my own hunch is it's not at all obvious to me that this, the second Iraq war would have happened absent 9-11. So I really do think it had a lot more to do with what I talked about before, this desire to, be, uh, to shape history, to transform the, the Middle East. Where I think there was something to what you say was less revenge for having the Iraqis having tried to assassinate the president's father than it was a way to distinguish himself from his father as a president. I actually think that the 43rd president had a tremendous desire to be a big president, uh, to be a consequential president, one who did bold things. And I believe that he looked at his father's handling of dramatic situations, including the end of the Cold War, or the first Iraq War, or the Madrid Peace Conference, and more broadly, his presidency as a low-keyed presidency. And I believe that he wanted to do, again, something to use the favorite word of the Bush administration, transformational. And the irony is that he succeeded. He succeeded. It was a consequential presidency. Uh, but just, I believe history is going to be quite critical uh, of, of the consequence. And ironically enough, I believe history is going to be quite favorable in its judgment of the father. And, you know, historical reputations ebb and flow. And my guess is in 25 years, the 41st president is seen quite favorably. And I would, I would expect uh, far more so than the 43rd. Uh, my name is Deborah Kennel from Los Angeles. Uh, you, well, you stated, I think, more than implied that whatever grand ideas about Iraq and the world in general that the president came to were really after 911. However, Paul O'Neill wrote that from the first meeting, and this was not his gig, I mean, this is, he, he's a, he was a treasury person, from the very first cabinet meeting, long before 911, um, this was on the agenda, and some people have argued this obsession disabled them or distracted them from paying attention to the signs that 911, that the Al-Qaeda would attack. I'm not arguing that they deliberately fostered the attack in order to have an excuse. I think that's too paranoid. What would you say to that argument? Uh, well, I certainly agree with your comment that that would be too paranoid. Uh, <laughs> there's zero evidence, I believe, that people missed 9-11 because of uh, preoccupation with Iraq. The 9-11 uh, Commission, which I thought was one of the more creative and talented commissions that ever produced a report, never saw that. And I never picked up an inkling of it. That said, I, you know, I know what Paul O'Neill said, and it's true to some in the sense that there were people who from the get-go had an agenda about Iraq. I, I didn't sense it was high up on the president's list early on, and it's one of those counter-historicals. Had 9-11 not happened, would the Iraq War have uh, happened or not? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I think the odds are against it, but I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, I would simply say what, what's clear to me is that 9-11 totally changed the political and more important psychological context. And that's where I said at one point I described the, the administration as a hammer looking for a nail after 9-11, and Iraq became the proverbial nail. They were looking for a vehicle to make a statement, and Iraq was the, the vehicle to do just that. And so even had 9-11, had happened, sure there would have been advocates for going to war against Iraq, and for all I know, Iraq would have given us provocations or whatever. Uh, but 9-11 certainly made it far, I mean, obviously, it, it brought it about, and it made it, it brought it about much sooner. And so I really do think it, it changed fundamentally the debate. Hi, my name is Alex from Hollywood. I uh, just had a question. How do you feel the military-industrial complex played into both Iraq wars? It's a little bit like the question I sort of raised and answered myself before about oil concerns in the, in the commercial sense as opposed to the strategic sense. 
I don't believe there are things like the military-industrial complex that force decision-making. The first war, people weren't looking for a war in 1990. And the reaction, what, what brought it about was a collective sense, as I said before, that what Saddam Hussein had done could not be allowed to stand for both symbolic and strategic reasons. And if you recall, it was a very close vote. It barely passed the Senate. It, what I called the war of necessity was a very close run thing. And that was even after the UN had voted in support of it. Still then, it barely passed the Senate by more than a handful of votes. So I didn't see any, there was no powerful military industrial complex lobbying for that war. The uh, second war, again, it was uh, not because of lobbying. It was because, I believe, uh, of the ideas of a group of individuals. I actually think that history will look back at the second Iraq war in some ways that it looks at the Spanish-American war as a, a war that to some extent was brought about by policy entrepreneurship on the part of individuals who had a, a certain agenda. So it was not to enrich or strengthen a military industrial complex, but it was to basically promote a set of objectives of the United States in the world. Again, uh, coming back to where I began, I think what really makes history are people and ideas. Uh, so it's not the, with all due respect to Mr. Eisenhower, it wasn't the military industrial complex. So. Uh, you're going to hold it? Okay. Hi, thank you for coming. Um, to touch on what you said, because I do agree that it was policy making, and, uh, oh, my name, uh, Gianna from Los Angeles. Um, I do agree that it was policy making, and I can see that in this second war. What is unsettling to me and what I don't understand is in policy making, it is quite common knowledge that in that part of the Middle East, um, it is a very religious and tribal part of the planet. And that kind of religious and tribal behavior, if it's policy making, if what they're wanting to, to spread democracy, knowing that that might not be accepted right away, I would think would be of great importance to them. So what I don't understand uh, from a country and um, the top part of the country with the number one country, all its resources, to not be able to see that, to not be able to deploy that, to not be able to, is very unsettling and, and perhaps frightening. My second part of the question, I'm sorry to be greedy, is uh, Iran. Now um, that we have created this situation in Iraq, how, would you talk a little bit about the situation that has now created with Iran? And was that foreseeable? Did they think about that, et cetera? Well, your first point, I share your concern. That was my point about the dangers of a lack of local knowledge. And the idea that people thought that it would be possible for the United States to win a battlefield military victory have so few troops, and that Iraq would sort of manage its own neat and smooth transition, I found stunning. It was also, though, very seductive. I mean, imagine you're the president of the United States, and people come into your office and say, have I got a plan for you? We are going to achieve great, indeed, historic things at a very low cost. Sounds pretty good. And the people like me who thought that was fundamentally wrong. Uh, couldn't prove it was wrong. It's, this is competing analysis to the extent there was even uh, much of a, a competition. But people there had essentially persuaded themselves that they could, again, realize extraordinary accomplishments on the cheap. And it was uh, misguided and indeed it was tragic. And it's an interesting question to ask yourself just as a historical or intellectual exercise. Just say we had done this right. So even if you were against the war, like I was, just say, though, they had done it right with hundreds of thousands of troops, very careful planning of the aftermath and so forth. Uh, they did not dismantle the Iraqi army. They did not um, ban so many people from the Ba'ath Party from holding political positions. My hunch is it still would have been difficult and costly, but I do believe it would have turned out considerably better than it, than it was. Do I, I still don't believe it would have been worth it on balance. I still believe that one has to think not only about the direct costs, but the opportunity costs, the indirect costs of doing this thing. But I, 
I don't believe it was inevitable it turned out to be as messy or expensive as it did. I believe we played a tremendous price for lack of knowledge or for arrogance or some combination of the two. In terms of Iran, Iran is the great strategic beneficiary of the war. Iran no longer has this fairly strong, fairly united Iraq to balance it. To the contrary, Iran is now the strongest external influence in Iraq. Uh, and that is the, that's the new strategic reality of the Middle East. And Iran has gained elsewhere in the last few years, initially from higher oil prices, through Hamas, through Hezbollah, and so forth. So one of the, again, you can choose the word irony, you can choose the word tragedy, you can choose your word. But one of the results of this war was to make the Middle East much more open to Iranian influence, which I believe was probably the great strategic uh, cost of the war. Bob Sherman, I'm part of We Are Change LA. Thank you very much for coming out. I have one question. Yes, you, would, you, you praised the 911 Commission, and I'm wondering how you could praise it when they didn't even mention Building 7. Uh, I don't know the details of Building 7, so I can't help you, sir. Sorry. Just Google it. I will. Um, my name is Sam Yergler um, from East LA. And um, you talked a lot about um, wars of um, choice and wars of necessity. And I was wondering what you thought would be a, um, like a necessity to use nuclear weapons. Uh, well, I'm hard-pressed uh, to think of where you know, we'd ever want to get to that. Obviously, the, you know, we have to have the threat of nuclear weapons still in existence uh, to deal with the highly implausible, highly unlikely thing that preoccupied us during the Cold War uh, in the case of Russia. But again, I've got a long list of things I worry about, and that's so far down the list I can't even uh, you know, count it. Uh, so. I would say the potential use of nuclear weapons is de minimis now. I think it's an interesting policy question about whether you still want nuclear weapons and you still want to have the threat of use, in part to discourage others from using uh, weapons of mass destruction, chemical or biological, whatever. Uh, but I'm very comfortable with the idea that we would, we would adopt a policy, what I would call, of no first use of weapons of mass destruction. And again, I've got a, a lot of things I worry about right now before, before the sorts of question about American use. I worry, though, much more. I do worry about the possibility of nuclear use by others. And uh, as I look at a world, I mean, if you saw today's New York Times and the story of the uh, Pakistan's growing pro uh, production of enriched uranium and increased its number of nuclear weapons, one looks at North Korea, one looks at the uh, Iranian activity. I would think that you know, as we go into the 21st century, the, the nightmare is either is some way or another that nuclear materials are either used by governments or transferred by governments or control is lost by governments and that essentially there is a use of, uh, of nuclear weapons in one form or another, not by the United States, but most likely by either some rogue state or non-state actor. And that, that, that is the nightmare, I would think, of the next few decades. Dr. Haas, this is a final question. Uh, before we do take the last question, we do want to invite you to join us at our reception. It's taking place right outside the main lobby in the courtyard area. Um, also, Skylight Books is out there selling copies of Dr. Haas's book, War of Necessity, a memoir of two Iraq wars. Uh, please join us. And here we go. You need to step out, sir. Uh, good evening. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you. Um, I guess uh, you've said two things here tonight that are surprising to me. Uh, the first is that... Uh, is that a compliment or a criticism? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, the first is that history is, in, uh, inev is not inevitable. And the second is that you do not believe that the military-industrial complex exists or is influential on how we you know, um, go about our business. Um, and the reason those are surprising to me is because when you have people such as Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, um, the Bush family, uh, Saudi Arabia... Uh, royal family are involved in both the first Iraq war and the second Iraq war. Um, certainly there's things that they wanted to accomplish the first time that didn't happen. You come in, bring in uh, troops, make a whole lot of money for the same people who didn't get what they wanted to accomplish the first time done. In as far as I'm concerned, the military industrial complex is alive and well in America. And 
um, history is certainly, uh, is, is, history is absolutely inevitable because it was just a matter of time before this happened again. Case in point, you could also say Afghanistan. No one has ever conquered Afghanistan, so history should teach us the inevitable result is that we will be destroyed and we will lose an unnecessarily um, large number of troops. So I guess my question is, um, how could you, how could you um, say that history is not inevitable <laughs> and that the military-industrial complex does not exist? Let me uh, take the second one first. On the military-industrial complex, I didn't say it doesn't exist. I was asked whether in any way I thought it led to either of these conflicts. The answer is no. I think there's powerful lobbying forces. And when you look at the defense budget debate, I think I or anyone would be naive to say there's no you know, uh, push out there for certain weapon systems and so forth. And I think our defense budget is, let me put it this way, the defense budget we have is not the defense budget I know anyone would design. It's certainly not the one the Secretary of Defense would design. And that's because of um, lobbying forces and so forth. It's, it's because of uh, corporations. It's also because of the way our, our politics in this country is funded and weapon systems which are built in, you know, 48 states or something like uh, that. So that's simply to me a fact of life. It's not unique, by the way, to the defense business. American public policy of all sorts is to a large extent determined by, or shaped, determined is too strong a word, I apologize, but is shaped by various special interest groups that have narrow interests. It's not bad, it's just the way it is. And foreign policy and defense policy in that sense are, are reflective of that larger uh, phenomenon. Uh, again, I just fundamentally disagree with you about your comments about uh, the first two wars. As I said, the first one was not welcomed by the Bush administration, but it was fought. The second one was, if you will, brought about by the uh, second president, but not for the reasons I believe you suggest. On Afghanistan, let me just say one thing. Uh, Afghanistan is becoming a war of choice. And let me just say what I mean. Uh, after 9-11, the United States ousted the Taliban. And I would describe that as a war of necessity. Al-Qaeda was there, self-defense, and so forth. Uh, after that, the United States didn't do much other than at times go after Al-Qaeda with, uh, shall we say, varying degrees of success or failure. The, uh, this administration came, came in four months ago and inherited a situation where Afghanistan was deteriorating badly. Did this policy review. And the president did some very interesting things, President Obama. He announced the sending of 17,000 more uh, combat soldiers to Afghanistan, 4,000 more trainers. He then changed U.S. objectives in two ways. One was he no longer uses the word democracy. If you read George W. Bush's statements about Afghanistan and you contrast them with Barack Obama's, you see a lowering of rhetoric in terms of ambition. Barack Obama talks about building up the capacity of the central government of Afghanistan. Let's not talk about democracy. But he's, he's, he's increased the resources to it. So there, there, there's that change. But secondly, in a less known part of what is uh, of his speech on March 27th, if I have my days right, he also talked about taking the fight to the Taliban in the south and east of uh, Afghanistan. And what I believe the United States has done is moved beyond the narrow goal of simply targeting al-Qaeda, and the United States has now become a, something of a participant in Afghanistan's civil war to push back the Taliban, to create time and space so we can build up the government of Afghanistan so they can essentially do this by themselves. Uh, that's a big decision. And you may be right in your reading of Afghanistan, I don't know. Uh, but I would simply say it's, it's one of the first big foreign policy decisions of the administration. I would call it a war of choice because it's not essential. And uh, the United States had other policy options, including keeping lesser goals, just going after al-Qaeda. But we've chosen to, go out, to uh, pursue slightly more lofty objectives in Afghanistan, not as, a, not as lofty as they could be. We're not talking about building what Bob Gates described as Valhalla. It's not building a shining city on a hill. But it is more than um, simply going after al-Qaeda. And this represents, therefore, something of a, of a choice. And I would simply say uh, it, it's, it's, it's by no means obvious that it will succeed. And it will take, if it were to succeed, it will take years of, of sustained effort. 
And it would, to some extent, it goes up against some of the traditions of Afghan society, which include strong periphery and a weak central government. So it's quite possible after a year or two, we are going to either have to think about adjusting our policy in terms of resources or adjusting our policy in terms of uh, what our objectives are. And that's, uh, but that's important. I mean, this was a very careful review that led up to this. And I would expect uh, there will be a careful review along the way. And that's, that's essentially what you have to ask of, of wars of choice. That as citizens, I think we should, uh, again, the, the lesson of history here is not that they're wrong. It's just that they have to be kept to a, held to a higher standard because they are not things you have to do. So again, it's not an argument against Afghanistan, but it is an argument to uh, closely scrutinize the policy as it, uh, as it unfolds. Thank you.